I'm Dr. Ernie Ward, and I love anything to do with the water. <laughs> oh my God, that's, that's so wide. Like, is that drinking water, splashing in the? What do you What do you like to do in the water? <laughs> Brendan, I love everything about the water, the H2O that surrounds us, that floats us, that we swim in, that we paddle on, that we surf on. I, I like everything about it. I guess the only thing I don't like about water is when yeah. it's in a frozen form because I don't well, like snow sports. <laughs> okay, but you don't have anything against ice and refrigeration. You're fine with that. No, no, no. In fact, I actually like ice and refrigeration, but I don't play <laughs> in ice or refrigerated states. Let's leave it at that. Does that mean, so your water thing, it's beyond just you like to go have fun on a surfboard. I mean, you feel, so is there something deeper, emotional, spiritual about something you feel when you go to the ocean? Yes, it, it, it is. It's that connection with the energy. It's that connection with nature. It's that connection with this body that really engulfs our entire planet and connects us all. I, I think, you know, I, I, I know that when I talk like that, people start to go, oh, Ernie's getting into his woo-woo stuff. But, you know, that awareness, that interconnectedness, that feeling of presence, like it's it's something that, that I, I've worked on for a long time individually and on a personal level, and it, it really is how I feel. And, and I'll tell you too, you know, we always have these philosophical debates, you and I, not debates, but discussions, Brennan, over the years, yeah. but you know, it's sort of like, you know, self and being and, and, and how we are in existence. And, and my wife is of the same mind as me. And she has that same feeling of connectedness. Now, obviously it's individualized. So her feeling is going to be different. Her perception would be unique, but at the same time, we both feel this incredible joy and connectedness when we're in the water. So it not only enhances, you know, our individual being, but it also you know, brings us together closer as a, as, a, as a family and as a couple. Was that true before you met? Or is this something that came to the two of you at different times over the course of your relationship, this intense love of water and realizing you shared that? Yeah, I, both of us came by it naturally. Now, my story, you know, like I knew I was going to be a veterinarian from a very early age. I've told that story countless times, written about it, shared with with colleagues and pet owners alike. But, you know, I also have always been strongly drawn to the ocean. And I got my initial uh, scuba certification back in the day. You had to be 15, but the local coach at our community college knew my love of the ocean and water. And he actually took me in when I was about 14. And you know, so, so I've always been sort of immersed in anything to do with the water. Now, I grew up in southwest Georgia, 172 miles from the <laughs> I know that exactly because I drove that as often as possible growing and does, up. Does lake and river cut it or it was the ocean? There's something, it's not just water. It really was the ocean. And that's a okay. really good point. I mean, I grew up water skiing and being, you know, in our rivers and lakes in Southwest Georgia. But yeah, for me, the, the siren song was always the, the Atlantic or the Gulf of Mexico. And so, you know, Laura, when I met her, so we met our freshman year of college and one of the first things I did was introduce her to scuba diving and she got certified that year. In fact, I actually helped uh, with her class. So I was able to be a, uh, not an intern, but you know, like a student assistant uh, yeah. for the class uh, because she took it at college. And so with my experience, they were like, yeah, you can come in and carry weights and tanks and fill up air. And, and, and so it was really nice for us to, we really sort of began our relationship in the water and it just extended. Now she didn't take up surfing till, um, 
till really right around the time of our second child's birth. That was always something that I did, you know, so okay. dad would go out and, and before her, she just never really got the surfing thing. And I'll tell you, Brendan, a lot of it is just the masculinity, the testosterone fuel you know, <laughs> thing that's out there, right? I mean, you're in a lineup. It's competitive. People are giving stink eye, maybe even giving you comments every now and then. And I think that really is a barrier to a lot of, of, of women who would want to be out there. You know, they see, they, you know, you see shirtless 16 year old guys, and it's just not something that a, a woman in her early thirties really wants to go engage in. So I think, but, but later in life, you know, yeah. I think we certainly all came together and, and we raised our daughters surfing. So, you know, that's, that's a whole nother level. So can I ask you about that? You, uh, that stereotype, you know, the stereotype we got out of the eighties, uh, is that the surfer is this, well, he's the relaxed dude who surfs the waves in Hawaii. Oh. And he's very calm and collected. And what you're saying is when you actually get out there, there's a lot of people out there who are bringing the same kind of competitive spirit that they bring to squash and football and baseball. Now they're out there surfing with some of that competition about the people. It's not just, hey, all kumbaya out there. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's downright dangerous. I mean, you know, I've, I've surfed. I've been really fortunate to surf all over the world. And, you know, you can you can get yourself into some serious trouble uh, in the wrong spot at the wrong time. Now, that ha having said that, there really is a dichotomy of surfer attitudes, right? There are people like me who are actually there to be more Zen like and to connect with nature and all that kind of you, you, woo, woo stuff. Right. And yeah. then at the other side of that, there are these super aggro people that are like, every wave is my wave. You know, you're a kook, you know, you're, you're, you're just stinking up the, the lineup. You know, there's that real strong uh, ethos out there. And so what, what I find what happens, and then of course you introduce paddle surfing into the mix and that really can upset some surfers. Uh, in fact, there are some places that we've gone where we just, you know, you're just not welcome on a paddle surf, which is really a bit ironic because that's probably how surfing really originated, you know, but okay, so to des describe to me what paddles, tell me what paddle surfing is. What does it look like What for people who've never seen? Because I've seen your videos. Actually, when you talk about this Zen woo-woo uh, kind of getting in touch with the water, the favorite videos I've seen of you are the ones where there are no other surfers around and you're just out paddle boarding for a really long time. Right. So and tell me about paddle boarding. Yeah, there's two different. So paddle boarding, by definition, yes. uh, is just using a larger, thicker, more voluminous board. OK, so okay. It, it floats you up slightly higher. Now, I will tell you, we are getting much more technical. My board today, my everyday board is a seven eight. So, you know, it's really not that much longer than a traditional surfboard. So we've gotten we've made technical advancements and, and the, the, the actual abilities have improved. But but having said that, you're on a la larger board and you're able to paddle. And so it breaks off into really two different sort of types. One is paddle surfing. And that's where we go out and we surf the same waves that you would see on a traditional surfboard, just a regular surfboard. Only okay. now we're doing it in a, in a standing position with a paddle. And the paddle is really nice because it assists us in catching waves. So we can catch, we can actually paddle faster than you can paddle with your arms, which means we're able to catch a waves further out, you know, before they've actually are fully breaking and B, we may be able to catch larger you know, waves than you could catch traditionally with a, uh, with a, a regular surfboard. So they, you know, regular surfboards have the advantage in smaller surf and steeper surf beach breaky stuff and paddleboards maybe have an advantage on slopier, you know, bigger waves that are breaking a little further out. So, you know, it's just one of those things, but then we get into paddle boarding. 
And it kind of breaks into some people will call this like flat water, but I do it in the ocean. But this is when we take special boards. In fact, my my race board is a 14 foot board. Okay. And it's about 25 wow. inches wide. My wife, the typical female is a 12, six, 12 foot, six inches. And it's, tw- she uses a 26 inch. I do have a 23 inch 14 foot board that I use also for backwater. 14, 14 foot board is like a boat. It's yeah. like a boat that isn't as wide. <laughs> right. It, exactly. And, and I'll tell you, having been in the sport since the inception, Actually, settling on those measurements has been a point of contention because obviously 14 feet and 12 foot six doesn't translate well to metric systems. So a lot of the world is like, wait, what? What is this? Um, and, and in fact, it's funny because when I talk to European counterparts, I will say a 14 or a 12 six because they don't understand that's 12 foot six inches. They just know it's a 12 six, <laughs> which is a shorter size. But anyway, we take these boards and, you know, this is what you'll see me you know, post like you're saying on, on pictures. And I yes. just go out, you know, I just I just head out to the horizon. And those are the most rewarding. Now I'm right now in the part of the season where I'm about at my fitness level, where I can begin to do my longer pushes, my five mile pushes offshore, five and six miles. And, and those are really, like you said, the most rewarding. I come from, as you know, Brendan, uh, history of ultra endurance sports, particularly Ironman. I really got into ocean paddling because I developed a, an Achilles injury after my last Ironman and then I was training for a, a 50 miler, uh, a 50 mile road race uh, after that. And I just wound up, um, yeah, I've, I've got a terrible, I have what's known as uh, calcific tendinosis of the Achilles. And that just means that my Achilles has turned into a solid mound of, of hard calcified flesh. And it's a real problem. But anyway, so, so Can for you, me, do you, do you try to break? So if it's calcifying, does it help? Do you try to break it up? I mean, with movement and pulling, or is it simply it just hardens? There's not much to do about it. Right. And, and baseball fans will are familiar with this injury because baseball uh, pitchers develop this after many seasons of pitching. And so this can l- limit the mobility of the shoulder joint in particular, oh, but also can affect the, the elbow. And so what happens is the only real surgery, and we've tried several different techniques, uh, is to do what they call a tendon splitting, where Brennan, they actually open up the Achilles or some of the shoulder ligaments and tendons and scrape out the calcium. Oh. Yeah. Which, <laughs> Which when you're talking about your Achilles and you're talking about, you know, hey, so right now I'm just sort of in this weird place. Um, so but I found, you know, I found another way to challenge myself. And and I do enjoy I, I really do enjoy right at the crack of dawn, you know, just kind of pointing a board, you and a paddle uh, and just going straight out into the to the horizon. Like that is really, really cool. And I'll tell you what's what I love the most. Is so we typically and usually I'm doing this by myself, quite frankly, which I don't want to get anybody hating on me. All right. I I'm <laughs> seasoned, experienced. I have proper equipment and safety backups and so forth. But, you know, so we each take our own risks. But um, I'll go out to these different uh, sea buoys. So right. So like you people that live along the coast or whatever, they know that like there's a lot of rocks and wrecks and artificial reefs that are out there where fishermen will go fish. And what's yeah. super cool is I will just come paddling up, you know, to a to a sea buoy two or three or four miles offshore. And there's a fisherman out there. <laughs> and, you know, inevitably, they are like, what? <laughs> Wait, how is this happening? And usually they're like, you know, I usually get a smart remark, you know, like, are you lost? You know, <laughs> stuff like that, you know. I don't see any fishing poles, um, but you know it, it is. It has been very, very interesting to kind of talk to some of these fishermen out there because that's a good spot to. That's usually my turnaround spot, you know, depending on where I'm headed, and uh, yeah. so it's kind of funny to 
I bet I give him some something to talk about. I did. Um, I will tell you, Brendan, a few years ago, I had pulled up on a uh, one of these, uh, you know, sea, sea, sea buoys and I was doing a turnaround and there was a lady out there and you know, they did the same thing. Hey, is everything OK? Yeah, yeah. I'm just out here, out here just, you know, training, training for exercise, racing and so forth. And um, she videotaped it. Right. And put it on her Facebook. And through a series of social media serendipity, I wound up, you know, somebody said, hey, there's this lady who's got this video of you. She put on her Facebook. So it was super cool. You know. <gasps> Yeah, because normally it's just you with your own GoPro or own camera looking at yourself or looking out. Yeah, that's interesting. And it is, you know, you do get to see, like, it is a different level of connection because you're on the water and you see a lot of life, including sharks, you know. And and uh, last fall, I actually um, got into a, uh, there were spinner sharks typically migrate up and down our coast in the fall. And spinner sharks are spectacular fish. You know, they they're the ones that jump up and they, they're called spinners because as they're coming, the way they kill their, they come through a, a, a pot of fish, you know, so there's yeah. a school of pogies and they spin their body around. They're trying to injure as many of the fish as possible and they leap out of the water still spinning. So it's spectacular. Well, last year, you know, I got into a, a group or pod or whatever you call a group of a cluster of sharks and uh, a couple of them were just like whoa what is that big thing you know so it's, it's really cool because they swam up under you know got I, i've had certainly um over the years i even caught one one time a big shark uh, a big bull shark uh about a six footer six to seven footer and that's i've put that video on instagram i just happened to have the gopro running because i was doing some stroke analysis for myself and this guy just jumps up behind me you know again just probably going what is that? But so I, I do like that connectedness. I don't like to sensationalize the shark part, but people always ask me about it. Aren't you scared? I, I really, you know, for me, I like things that challenge me. I also, I also like, you know, I like risk reward, you know, so, so like me putting myself in minimal danger, but you know, there is some risk associated with going offshore by yourself. Um, yes. that also, that also, is more rewarding and satisfying. And, and again, there are some people that are hardwired for these things or there are people that jump out of airplanes or there are people that go rock mountain climbing and all that stuff. I think we all have our own little comfort level with risk. But, you know, for me, this is just one of those areas that, that I feel comfortable with and it makes me feel a little more alive. There are people who, um, so I, you hear about this risk reward thing oftentimes, or maybe most prominently when people are talking about dangerous non-oxygen assisted ascents on mountains and there's this complaint that it is unethical or immoral for mothers and fathers to do that because they're running a high risk that they could be injured or killed on that thing. For you, how do you manage those risks? So first of all, what are the, when those when those sharks are showing up, are you excited or panicked? And then in addition to that, how does that inform your feeling of where's the line? How far what how far is too far for the buoy? And have you ever gotten in places where you realize, okay, I'm actually at risk, and that told you where you, your line was? Yeah, that's a lot on the table there, Brendan. But yeah, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's a lot of questions. I want to ask about the. I think mostly I want to ask about where your line is and how you know where it is. Well, and, and the father, uh, you know, husband role. That's that's a really important one, and this really goes back even to Iron Man training days because I mean the sacrifices that you know I was. I was making right or wrong, but these are my choices and my family's choices, you know, because I'm spending an inordinate amount of hours. You know, a lot of my Saturdays were spent, you know, 
going out and doing six, seven hour, you know, uh, training runs and rides and so forth. So there's all that kind of weird guilt. But at the end of the day, I also know that those are the things that fortify and nurture me and make me a better father and a better husband and a better veterinarian and a better whatever, right? A human being. So uh, yeah, everybody has to do that. But I would never, you know, my brother and I, who is a mountain climber, you know, we had these discussions early on. So before he had kids, he was, you know, going off to Europe and climbing a lot of famous peaks. And then when he had kids, you know, he began to scale it back. And, and I think I followed a similar pattern. My children now are grown, you know, and they live away from home. So there is a little bit of that, but I would, I just don't believe in unnecessary risk taking, but I do think that element of, of danger and risk does, as you say, excites me. So what happens when you do get in these situations that, you know, Hey, you're, you're dependent. What I like most, you know, my good friend, Brendan, you know, I've talked about him before, Dr. Dr. Stephen Kotler, the famous author who does all the flow research, one of the things that really helps you, you know, focus is that sort of survival instinct. So I do treasure those times, right, when you're kind of right on the edge because that's when you are the most present. Uh, and so this is kind of that adrenaline junkie theory and all that, you know, but but I do think it's important for humans to visit that area from time to time, because you do need to be reminded about your mortality and the fragility and the value of life. You know, that doesn't mean that you put yourself in, again, in an inordinate danger. You don't take unnecessary risk, but it's not a bad you know, idea sometimes to run till you puke, you know, yeah. <laughs> because you, you know, that, that sort of feeling of, of, of your physical being, you know, right. And then how do you cope with that emotionally? So when I, and yes, I've, 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 I, I typically, I've rarely encountered weather issues because I am super OCD when it comes to tracking weather and, and wind and, and tidal, tidal path. I was going to ask about right. that if you ever got caught in anything. Right. Yeah. And, but, but you do, you do, you do. And, and so the reality is, um, you do everything you can, but there's always going to be that 2% that you just can't you know, predict or, or in any way plan for. And so those are the times when, you know, you kind of, you, you really, you know, that's when you dig deep. And I think that what, what I've learned most about being in those situations where you are right at the edge is learning how not to panic and how to calm and how to center yourself. Because when you are flooded with really threatening stimuli, the first thing that the body wants to do, the mind wants to do is to panic and to lash out and to really make big, bold moves. And that's probably the exact opposite you should do. And we can actually put that in in relatable terms. I mean, this is like even confronting criticism in the workplace, you know, or or stressful interaction with a client. I, I will say, I think these things have made me better at interacting with that and kind of just being able to sit back there more passively, more measured response. You know, I may be seething inside, but but I'm still able to control sort of my physical being, which is a big, big part of the, the battle. Can you can you think of an example where either when you're working, when you're doing Ironman or when you're surfing or when you're out heading for that buoy, you're miles offshore. Are there times when you did make the big overcorrect and then you look back and you're like, I'm lucky I didn't die. That was I reacted too quickly to that scary stimulus. Yeah. I, yeah. Hurricane surf, uh, probably 10 years okay. ago. And, uh, so I was paddling out and there was a rip current, uh, a rip current, as you know, can be your friend or your foe and surfers, we tend to get in a rip to help carry us out as quickly as possible. And there was a rip that typically formed, it was on the, on the West side of our pier. So basically you had to go right in by the pier and go out and catch this rip and, and hopefully, you know, you make it 
past too much of the white water and the breakers and so forth. Well, anyway, I got about three quarters of the way out. Big set comes in. I take it on the head and my leash snaps. Okay. So now I am alone. I don't have a surfboard. I don't have a paddle. I don't have anything. It's me swimming. And I'm about five feet next to a oyster encrusted pier piling. Okay. Oh crap. And, and uh, who knows how many untold hooks and lines and all kind of stuff. Right. And so a, I realized very quickly that I'd put myself in a position that I never should have put myself in. Right. Because not thinking through, well, what if I didn't have a means of flotation? <laughs> you know? I yeah. mean, could I actually, and, and of course the current is pushing you into the pier. Now, um, I will tell you, you know, that was, I, Firmly at that moment, I said, I'm probably going to die. Like I really had that kind of realization and, and I've never really had that before. Um, and so I'm sitting out there and, you know, the first thing I did, of course, was do the exact wrong thing, which was to paddle, try to paddle against you know, <laughs> rip current and try to swim away from the pier. And after doing this for about, well, it seemed like, you know, an hour, but probably for three or four or five minutes, I was now exhausted, right? So I'm swimming in a hurricane, in a rip current, and now I'm maybe 10 feet away from a pier piling that if I crash into, if that next big set comes, I'm going to be seriously injured, if not die. And so somehow, like, I just like stopped. And I don't to this day exactly know how I got this idea to just chill for a second. But I did. I chilled for a second and I started to kind of like do this mental calculus of what would the rip do? Like, where's this rip headed? Right. You know, I had this idea to begin with. It would take me out. And I was watching other surfers. So I kind of had an idea. And I knew also that the rip was peeling west as it got further towards the end of the pier. And I said, why not just go with it? And Brendan, I will tell you, the moment I relaxed and stopped fighting and yeah. kind of just negotiated that rip current, pulled me out away from the pier and, you know, look, I was further away, but now I could body surf and swim my way back to the shore. So that, that's the only, I don't know if that answers your question, but that was a real, that was a super striking moment for me. Um, what was kind of funny is people on the beach, you know, are watching this and people, you know, I think one of the things about surfing, you don't, people don't understand how alone you really are. So people on the beach are watching me and they are, they have no idea the mortal danger that I am in. Right. <laughs> and, and you go, well, man, you're only like 30, 40 yards offshore. Right. I mean, how right. hard would that be when this, when this amount of current and water and waves and power is coming at you, pummeling you, I mean, you do realize just how infinitesimal we are in the scope of things. It's so interesting. It's also the difficulty. And I think uh, maybe this comes in, you mentioned that workplace encounter or uh, interactions with people in conversation. <clears throat> it's the counterintuitive thing. Your body and your brain want you to do one thing and you have to have this extra layer of either relaxing into it and waiting to see what happens next or the counterintuitive, like they talk about these rip currents. If you get dragged out to water, exactly as you've said, there's a million things out there that say, hey, don't fight that current. You're going to wind up a mile or two in the wrong part of the beach, but then you can walk, pack, or swim back. You'll be fine. But it's counterintuitive. You're scared of getting farther away from home. You're scared of getting farther away from the people. Um, I don't know. All that to say how you that how you settle on the counterintuitive, you fight against your instinct and settle on something else is a tough thing to do. Yeah. And this is where experience plays a role, right? So like, yeah. had I not had, you know, decades of sort of water experience, would I have been able to 
just sit there and relax for a second. If I hadn't seen a hundred or a thousand other rips and ridden a hundred or a thousand other rips, would I have actually been able to have that clarity to go, wait a second, stop being an idiot and actually just do what you were supposed to do and what you were planning to do. So I don't, you know, I don't, I think that experience also plays a big role. And that's why, again, I, I just, I want people to constantly, you know, be in touch with themselves at all levels, physical, emotional, you know, spiritual. I mean, because I think that, that if you don't do those things, when you really need it, you don't have the experience to draw upon. And so, you know, you're, you don't stop fighting. What did it feel like in your life? Because I imagine there must have been times in your busy life where you don't get enough water time. So not enough time surfing, not enough time in the water, not enough time paddling. What does that feel like to not be not have enough time in the ocean? Yeah, it almost felt like that this morning because uh, in my little surf crew, we were all texting and Laura and I, so we get up every day, you know, before, before dawn and start to look at, you know, and everybody heads to the beach and, you know, checking cams and whatever. And so we've had kind of a, a, not a great water spell. So we haven't surfed in about a week now. Uh, Now I have been able to do paddling. So I paddled uh, yesterday. I had a nice, uh, nice paddle yesterday, but um, yeah, so this, this for my wife, Laura, I will tell you, she, it is... (laughs) visceral like she she does get grumpy like you know she's just and then she gets kind of desperate and so you know so then she goes and surfs the slop you know and then she's more frustrated you know so it is kind of funny to to watch her because you know again it it has become an important part of our life and you know so i mean we are we do surf year round you know we have different equipment you know surf you know boards and we have wetsuits and all, all the different things to make sure that we can engage in this as often as possible the other thing too that about surfing that i particularly like and it's different than any other athletic or or, or any type of endeavor that i do is that you are it is you're not in control, like with tennis or golf, like there are like, if it rains, I get it. If there's thunderstorms, I get it. But most of the time you can go when you want to go with surfing. It's completely up to something else, right? It's got to be a wind event that happens hundreds or thousands of miles away to generate that energy in the water that's then transferred, you know, to your local beach break. And so, or, or, or reef or whatever, wherever you live. Yeah. And so, you know what I'm saying? It's like one of those things where you really learn to treasure it. And so when the, when the good days come, you know, you're there. And it was always funny because in clinic, you know, my staff, I would, we would start to warn them, especially in hurricane season. You know, <laughs> like, okay, look, the current forecast is that six days from now, <laughs> we're going to have a Mac and swell hit. So that means that Dr. Ward is not going to be here probably that morning. So, you know, okay, was, I was going to ask how you manage that. And I know, yes, it's possible to manage, especially, so we're going through the pandemic right now. So a lot of work has moved online. A lot of work you do by email or by teleconference, but oftentimes still people want you to be on the phone all the time. Can you, how much of your life can you really arrange around this? Is it really possible to do it almost all the time and emergencies really don't pop up that often? Right. And and look, you know, we are fortunate, but by deliberate intention, we live on a barrier island on North Carolina. So, right, I can grab my board under my arm and walk out and go surf. So I feel okay. very, very fortunate. Having said that, that's by design. You know, we could have moved. We could have, we certainly could have had a different house, you know, I mean, but for, for Laura and I, that was the priority was proximity to the ocean. So that, you know, we, I mean, this goes back to when we were teenagers first dating, we were like, you know, 
we want to live by the ocean. We need to live by the ocean. So, so getting back to that, yes, it is, it is from a point of privilege. Uh, we feel very, very grateful for that. Um, and then the other part, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that a lot of people have ever fully understood what I've been about, but between like my outdoor athletic endeavors and doing Ironman training, which is a a terrific commitment of time and effort, you know, I've had to be optimally and efficiently scheduled. And, and, you know, so all those years, Brendan, when you see me writing those articles about scheduling and efficiency in the exam room, I mean, this is all to serve something outside of the clinic. And I, I don't, I don't think I've ever been able to successfully connect that. You know, people, we, we get so wrapped up within the four walls of our businesses or even our homes that we forget that the life that we create within those four walls allows us to extend beyond them. And so for me, all these efficiencies, all this stuff really allowed me to go to these other pursuits that made me a whole person. That doesn't mean that you have to do these other pursuits. I'm just saying that if you want to, you've got to be super efficient. What do your kids, so growing up, how did, how did your kids react to the Iron Manning and the surfing? And especially when your wife picked this up and it was just as important to her, did they totally buy into it or their periods of rebellion? What was it like growing up? Yeah, it's, it, and that's something I'd love to get, uh, you know, them, we, we talk about this from time to time. Number okay. one, they liked the travel aspect. Like it was exciting. Like a race atmosphere is really exciting. So race day is awesome. I think <laughs> the sucky part is the Monday through Sunday training, right? I mean, I typically, especially during Ironman years and, and, you know, look, I was competitive for, you know, nearly 15 years. So, you know, I made it to the world championships in the half iron one year. So, I mean, I, I was not at, you know, I wasn't just at a casual level. I was really pushing myself to be as good as I could be in that. Um, and, and again, that was just, you know, I, I don't ever half do things. I mean, I think there are, there, there's certainly a great advantages to just being able to, to say, I'm going to participate and I just want to finish. I got that. I just, that's not exactly how I'm hardwired, which is a problem, but regardless, they like the race. I think that it's the, the dad up at, you know, four, four thirty five AM every day, you know, dad, you know, uh, I really didn't miss that much stuff, but I did miss certain things. But, you know, for me, I think the training probably would be the impactful. What I do think though, what I, what I'm really happy about is both of my children are very active to this day. So it has definitely transferred to them. Like, you know, my younger daughter, I mean, she is, you know, she's more like me. Like if she doesn't really engage in good aerobic activity every day, she starts to feel, you know, like she's flat or whatever. My older daughter, uh, who is now at Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, she's had to adapt. And so she's doing things like, you know, uh, I, I like, uh, Zumba classes and things like that, that I don't really relate to, but they're fun. Right. So she gets there with all these uh, different friends of hers and they do all these different classes. Uh, she does cycling. So we all do Peloton. Um, but I like the fact that it's transferred to them. They also saw their mom do, uh, two or three years of triathlon. So, you know, when they were little, really once the kids got around, I guess, four or five, Laura, uh, trained and, and did, uh, uh, you know, about two, two or three seasons of triathlon. She got up to Olympic distance. So she wasn't going, you know, super long, but Olympic yeah. respectable, respectful. And so they got to see mom do it as well. I think what, what, you know, when I, when I'm talking to other parents about this stuff, I'm just going, look, 
I, I get it. There are lots of sacrifices, but I think the impressions that you're making now are going to be lifelong. And so I, I, I can tell you this with absolute certainty. My kids understand the value of nutrition, of restorative rest and exercise. You know, of course, we can get into intellectual pursuits and spiritual pursuits. But, you know, they, they that is something that they are kind of, you know, they're they're vocal about, which I'm proud of. I feel like there's also a tendency there. There is a tendency in philosophy and religion at different times and in different strands to <clears throat> divorce the mind from the body. And I feel like there's an emphasis now. Part of the emphasis, I think it can be good and bad. Part of it can be people start. I don't think you do this. They start worshiping the body and physical health as their purpose. And I don't think that's where you're coming from. I think you mix the mind and body together. And I think Today, there's an emphasis on like Buddhism and mindfulness meditation. That's all mind and body sort of mixed together. And that seems like a, I assume it seems like a modern and an ancient thing, but I'm glad it's back. And it sounds like from this very beginning of the conversation, you were talking about that. Yeah, it is a Zen thing for me. I, I, um, and you're right, because if these are vanity pursuits and I have encountered, and look, you know, I am a certified personal trainer. Uh, I'm a, USA triathlon accredited coach. I've dealt with lots of different athletes and you're right. Some some are completely vanity driven, you know, and, and I'm not going to judge that. I don't know that that's the healthiest of pursuits, but having said that, you know, the, the reality is there's a wide spectrum. And I think that especially the people that stay athletic and, and especially with endurance athletics, which is my, my world. So I can only speak from that perspective. You know, you do as, as you evolve and as, especially as you get older, you do tend to take that time during each activity to really focus on, you know, your, your being. And, and by that, I mean everything that's going on. And I'll tell you right now, if you're listening today, I don't care what age you are, what level you are. Here's my best advice. The first 10 minutes or five minutes, even of your physical activity, whether you're walking, whether you're getting on a treadmill, whether you're going for a hike, a bike, I don't care. I really, this is what I encourage you to do. Before you put on that playlist, I really want just just you to be. And and I always tell my athletes this, the first 10 minutes of your warm-up should be completely focused on what is my body feeling? What am I doing in this space right now? And so, you know, for, for paddling, like, I mean, this is really great. It's like a technique driven. But even when I go for runs, which are only now limited to four or five miles, sadly. But you know, <laughs> I can feel I'm, the sadness. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. But it's it's a different thing. But but I I focus on that. How is my leg moving today? What am I feeling? Right? Is there any tension in my body? And I know that sounds again like woo woo, but just take that stillness that that first part to warm up because I think that too often we don't connect back with our bodies and our being and we just strap on the latest, you know, hip hop playlist and we're suddenly now in another world, which there's value to it. But if you could really just slow down that first part of the the exercise or activity and focus on your movements, not only will you improve your technique and which will probably progress your, your abilities, but also I think it helps you unite with your being. So just, just, that's my best advice. And it's something I've told people for years. I, again, I don't know if it lands with people, but you know, I just say before you turn on the iPod or whatever you're playing, you know, um, I, I just stated myself, I just realized there aren't iPods anymore. Are there? <laughs> I was just thinking about iPods <laughs> yesterday. I missed them. I missed that little thing. I will tell you that advice, for instance, today, I I've already gone for a long walk this morning. But part of habit making is they try to encourage you to make triggers. So you're basically, habit making is all about not thinking about what you're doing. And that's how you make something a habit. But what you're, the problem is 
when you get bored or tired and you don't want to do it, it's a little hard to goad yourself. You don't, you've developed a habit and, but the habit is hooked up to something else and it's not hooked up to the actual experience of doing that thing. Whatever that thing is, if you get up and drink the water and then the one day you don't feel like it, you don't normally take any mindful joy out of drinking that water. You just do it out of a habit. So I could see how that's helpful in habit making, but it actually, I think can be destructive to long-term joy in doing this exercise, which should be, why do all this exercise and why do all this stuff and take all this time if you're not experiencing some deep joy just doing the thing, not pretending you're doing something else while you do the thing? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I really I, I sometimes and look, I I've gone through complete, you know, evolution and you're con it's a dynamic journey, you know, where it's like no music and then right. only listening to books and then only listening to podcasts <laughs> and then no music and then some music. And so you, know, you wind up finding these things. But um and, and you do have to find it, but I, where I, where I really think people are missing the opportunity is that connectiveness at the beginning of exercise. And like you said, the reason I recommend it at the beginning is not only because that's the warm up, which I think you're probably less likely to incur serious injury because if you're paying attention to like, where's the tension in my body? And I literally go through a, a loving mindfulness type of uh, meditation. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of like focusing, going through and following my breath and the energy. But um, the reality is that is when you're less tired and you're more focused. And so I think, you know, again, just, I love the habit forming and, and, but it needs to be part of the joy, like whatever it is, however you find that joy at the end of the day, you know, I think that we have a lot of neurochemical advantages with doing endurance or aerobic activity because all of those three neurotransmitters are reset. You got endorphins kicking in. And yeah. so you're feeling more relaxed and focused. But, you know, I, I think that if you can then just take that one extra level and say, let's be a little more mindful about what is going on. And, and, you know, and again, practicing gratitude during the run, that's, that's another thing that I, I will say this probably 99.99% of the time when I, before I engage in any type of quote unquote exercise, and I hate that term, but you know, you're going out for that. <laughs> Uh, the, I will tell you within the first 30 seconds, I take real stock and say, man, I am so fortunate to be able to do this, you know, and you kind of reflect on not everybody has this opportunity, whether it's work constraints or family or health or whatever, you know, they may be dealing with political oppression where they live. Right. So for me, I just go, golly Moses, you know, I'm in a hotel in Boise and I'm on a treadmill and it stinks in here, but by golly, <laughs> I am lucky to be able to do this. What is for you, it doesn't have to be, a, it could be a story you tell all the time, but what for you, is there a pinnacle experience you had on the water that you always come back to? I have felt at certain times, usually when I've been overwhelmed, I feel like I broke through a wall and it didn't have to do with exercise, it had to do with emotions. I feel like I break, break through to some awareness of how I fit in with everything. And you just have this feeling of euphoria or enlightenment or like you're in the flow. Have you had one of those and what did it feel like and what brought it on? Well, A, I actively pursue flow state. So this okay. is something that I am almost engaging in daily, certainly anytime I write. And so, you know, having a buddy like Kotler all these years, I've really, I feel like I've got, you know, a leg up on a lot of people because, you know, I've got, I've got my, my, and I will say this, if you are really interested in flow state, you need to check out Stephen Kotler, read any of his a gazillion books, bestsellers, okay. two-time Pulitzer, you know, nominee. I mean, the guy's the real deal. But um, the reality is there are certain steps. And as, as Brendan, you've said there, it's a habit, like entering into a flow state is something that you really have to train yourself to be able to do. That doesn't mean it's like magic or anything like that, but it is an intense period of focus. And, you know, you, you are able to block out the rest of the world. So you can 
train yourself to be more amenable to this state. So, A, I, I think that's, you know, right. Uh, you're absolutely right. The, the times, I, I will say, the, the most transformative uh, yeah. things for me that really happen um, more at the like, I, I will say, when people ask me about that spiritual connection, it was finishing my first Ironman. <laughs> <I know it's, laughs> so we're at the end about, of the whole thing. At the end of the whole thing, coming in, it was the last quarter mile. And, you know, at this point, I'd had a pretty good race. I was going to go sub 12. And so, um, and I really had had uh, my run, my, my swim and uh, bike were good. And I had kind of fallen apart the last half of the run. And so I was really disappointed. But then I kind of started that last mile. I started like reflecting on all the, the steps that, that led me to this, you know, and blah, 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 all that, all that stuff. And the last quarter mile, man, I, I will say without a doubt, it was out of body experience. My kids and wife, Laura, were 100% carrying me. I only have this recollection of that last quarter mile of, of honestly an intense, warm, white light. I know people are going to be like, that is a bunch of malarkey, but that is my that is my memory of it. I am just floating. Like I have never had that kind of transcendent experience where literally my, my kids and wife were carrying me across that finish line. Now, the joy that you see on my face in those pictures, it is unmistakable, unmistakable. But the reality is, you know, that that was the most truly out of body. And that's because you were completely spent, like physically, emotionally, you know, because that's the thing I like about putting myself out, you know, four, five, six miles offshore because the emotional investment you have, like, you know, and I do like those things that, that you, there's no point of return. So, but I, but I, I don't typically have that transcendent feeling on the ocean. And I'll tell you why I think Brendan, because in the back of my mind, I think my limbic, my amygdala is going, dude, you can still die out here. So no, no, no warm white lights. Okay. No, no hallucinations. You know, you are going to stay on this board and paddle your ass off. Right. So, so I think there may be that element there. Um, but I, I will tell you this many times coming back, even from a six miler, when you hit the beach, that just sense of, wow, you know, that, and, and you know, I always tell people, and you've heard me say this in lectures, probably Brendan yeah. is like, I like to start my day off with a victory. And so these, like, even if you go, even if you drink 12 ounces of water before you have a coffee or tea or whatever, even if you go for a 10 minute walk, like if you start your day with a victory, something that you can be proud of that you think made a positive contribution to your well-being, then that's, that's a really important step in your day because, you know, this is, gets me back to my tilt towards optimism ethos or belief because, you know, all those things like going past the point of no return, you know, those are the things that really do recharge, I think, your ability. But more importantly, they build resilience, they build self-confidence, you know. Um, I, I, I can't tell you how many times in my life, my adult life, I have said to myself, if you can do an Ironman, if you can put yourself, you know, five, six miles offshore of the ocean by yourself, you can get through this. And like that type of resilience and being able to lean back on that, that's, that's really, really important, I think. So it's part of, for you, it was about also having these experiences. These things are part of your, they're part of your story now. And so when new things happen, you have this sort of, this history book you pull off and go like, I went through this, I went through this, I went through this. How bad can this be? 
Yeah. And I think you have to have that. And we all have that. It doesn't have, I mean, my story is going to be different than yours, Brendan, and anybody else's, but you've got to be able to go back and look at those other chapters that were challenging and how you got through it. Because, you know, when it's completely unscripted, that's when you don't, there's no plot. I mean, you know, you're like, I have no idea how I'm going to respond in this situation. Right. And that's a, that's a, not a great place to be. And this is one of the things, you know, as parents, I think Laura and I, you know, when we looked at, at sort of the, the experiences and things we tried to do with our kids, yeah, it was to give them some of those early chapters to build confidence upon so that now as adults, when they encounter their own crap, you know, they're able to look back and go, well, I, I did this, you know, I got through that. And I think it's really, you know, and again, Brendan, you know, you're, you have a daughter as well, but you know, it's really trying to instill in them those little stories, those quick little parables that they can then compare their, you know, existing situation with and say, I've kind of been here before, not exactly like this, but I've gotten through this, so I'll get through that. I, and I will tell you, normally I have a, I have a difficult time getting through all my questions about something, but you have natu- I think we've naturally talked about everything I wanted to cover about this, about water and about its connection to you. Um, is there anything for people who think they're interested in surfing or interested in paddle surfing or paddle boarding or interested in flow. Is there, what, what do you want people to go to? You mentioned the Kotler book. If they're interested in surfing or, or paddle surfing or paddle boarding, where's the first place they should go. And if they want to go explore what you're talking about, about these flow states, where should they go? Yeah, I, I think those are, those are, are great. I, I'll tell you right now, um, go online and just uh, paddle monster. P-A-D-D-L-E-M-O-N-S-T-E-R, but then they spell it with P-D-D-L-E-M-N-S-T-R. So if you Google Paddle Monster, Larry Kane uh, does a great job up there. And 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 Laura has taken a couple of classes from Larry over the years. He's an ex-Olympic uh, canoeist and, and he's a Canadian, but he also has a great life philosophy. But I think uh, Paddle Monster, um, you know, sub... Uh, there's a, a sub border magazines, but there's tons of Instagram, you know, there's a lot of influence and really, you know, there's, there's two types of, of paddle boarding. You know, there's this one where people are used to seeing these kind of big fat foamy boards and you can go paddle around lakes and canals and even rivers. And, and that's really great. It's a leisure activity, but yeah. then you're going to quickly cross over into, wow, you know, these guys are getting their butts kicked out there, you know, I mean, if you see the amount of sweat that's pouring off me during these, these runs, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it is very, very similar to, um, to running, you know, uh, for sure. Um, in terms of, of body though, I think the anatomy of actually being on an unstable surface, which, you know, I've always advocated for doing as many of your exercises, you know, much of your floor work on an unstable, a BOSU ball or something, you know, uh, try to, try to do unstable. This is really engaging your core at a deeper level. When you get the technique down, I mean, it is, you know, your entire thorax and your shoulders, you know, uh, <laughs> This is really a great, great activity. And I like the fact also that as we age, you really do want to maximize and optimize balance because that's one of the most protective, you know, uh, skills that you can possess as you age, because we all know that you've heard history. I mean, of stories of people breaking their hips and typically yeah. it's an imbalance issue. Um, and so, so I like that, you know, the physicality of, of, of really getting into this paddleboarding, it's, it's something you should take seriously, especially if you've had a, like a lower leg or a knee injury or hip injury, uh, hip can be a little more problematic on the, on a, on the board because you are having to rotate your hip and you have to have, you know, be able to open your, your pelvis up pretty wide because you know, it, 
uh, I won't get into the biomechanics of it, but it really, there is some, some utility there of the hips, uh, especially yeah. when you paddle, but getting into that, it's a great way. If you've had an injury and you're rehabbing, it's just, it's a fa fantastic sport. Surfing, obviously without a doubt, steepest learning curve of any sport known to man. Um, there's just nothing like it. Time on the water is what really makes the difference. You know, the ability, I mean, you can instantly tell a surfer that has read the water for many years because they're going to see bumps way off on the horizon before anybody else. They're going to be paddling to a spot that nobody else is going towards. And then suddenly, out of, almost magically out of nothing, <laughs> this wave j jacks up. So it's a beautiful sport, but it does require quite an investment of time. And, you know, and so, so I, I really, for me, Brennan, I guess as we wrap up today's conversation, it's the, the foundation of this is just the connection with nature. And so some people find it in the woods, some people find it on the slope, some people find it in the mountains, some people find it in the air. I happen to find mine in the ocean. And, and I think that all of us need to find that one place of connectedness because what I don't like is the, the, the concern that I have around people that aren't physically connected to the earth. I mean, I think we're learning now how truly interconnected we all are. I mean, there was a person in a foreign continent that contracted a virus, most likely from um, uh, an animal, and it made its way to where I live in North Carolina. So if you don't believe that we are connected on a planetary level, I mean, that's really hard to refute. So I like the fact that when I'm in the ocean, I will tell you, you know, and, and, and I, I run with a really good crew. And of course, Laura and I are also deeply connected like this on a spiritual level. But we, you know, it's amazing. We think of this water that we're standing on right now, that we're about to surf on right now. This water, this exact molecule was down in the Bahamas days ago. Like yeah. that energy transfer is real. And so I, I think it's really a valuable perspective to kind of keep in mind. You know, it, it helps you from being so egocentric as well, because like I mentioned, you know, just being out there in the ocean all alone, being in a, a serious, you know, life threatening, potentially situation. You know, those are all the things that that humility and that connectedness and that reliance on nature. I think that's really beneficial to all people. And it just gets easier and easier in sort of first world urban and suburban living to have no connection because we live in an air conditioned, safe, walled up environments that are comfortable and built for our, <clears throat> again, for our pleasure at any moment. Uh, and I, yeah, I think it's easy to get disconnected from nature. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that Steve and I have talked about many times over the years is that comfort typically does not equate to creativity, right? <laughs> you know, right? Like, you know, if you look at all the great storytellers, they are telling stories that are exciting, that are adrenaline filled, right? That are dangerous and risky. And, and look, I'm, I'm not advocating for people to go out and pr pursue things, right? But what I am saying is that that is the part that fuels you know, life. Like, you know, we are not creatures that were designed just to sit in a black room, right? You know, we were designed to move and to experience and to be. And, and I think that it, from my perspective, those are the things that allow me to be more productive and hopefully to be a more positive influence on those around me. Okay. Because you mentioned Steve again, pitch me, pitch us on a one Kotler book. We got to read it. What is it? Uh, Catching Fire. It'll blow your mind. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, Ernie. This was a super huge pleasure. I love talking to you about this stuff, so I appreciate you making the time. Oh, Brendan, my pleasure. I'm just so 
proud of you. Happy to have you in my life. You're an amazing individual. Uh, you are really a positive light and you just give so much hope and enthusiasm. And you know, I, I've known you for a long time and I've seen you deal with a lot of different things. And I've just, I, I'm amazed at your resilience. You are truly a remarkable person. And, you know, Brendan, I, I don't say these things lightly. I just really, really am grateful to have people like you in my life. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I've decided that every podcast should end with a compliment about me. Uh, this was Ernie, and uh, he has a profound, deep experience with the water.